Good morning, everybody. My name is John Forsyth, the vicar at St Jude's, and it's my delight to preach this morning on uh, extremely challenging, uh, profound, and life-changing passage as we continue our series looking through Romans 9 to 11 together. And a particularly warm welcome to you if this is your first time at St Jude's or if you are visiting us. We are delighted that you can be with us and we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, in 1543, a Polish astronomer published a treatise that would change the way we see the world. His name was Nicholas Copernicus. And his revolutionary treatise was that the center of the universe is not the earth. The sun and the moon and the stars do not circle around us. But rather the sun sits at the center of our solar system and we, on our little rock, circle around it. And it was this Copernican revolution which revolutionized not just how we see the universe but how we understand our place in it. And Romans 9 to 11 are a bit of a Copernican revolution because they remind us that we don't sit at the center of the universe. That is often where our hearts and minds and selfish interests place us. But Paul very clearly, as he expounds this great gospel, reminds us throughout these chapters particularly that God in his sovereignty sits at the center. And therefore we are to shape and respond with our lives around him. And the particular issue at hand that kind of leads us to this conclusion is the question of, well, what about the Jewish people Israel? If Israel is God's chosen people, the promised covenant people, Paul says, why does it appear so many of them are cut off, are not responding to this Messiah, Jesus? And behind that sits a bigger question. Has God been faithful to his promises? After all, he's made these extraordinary promises to his people, Israel, has God's word been true? Is he trustworthy? How much more is this a question for us Gentiles? And Paul kind of starts way back in chapter 9. We looked at this last week. In fact, two weeks ago, I think, actually, not even last week. It's not as though God's word has failed, he says. No, God's sovereign word has not failed. That's not the reason why Israel have not responded. And then he goes on to give us the reasons why. And it's kind of very roughly three reasons why. Uh, it corresponds very roughly to chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, chapter 9 has a particular focus on God's sovereignty. No one reminds us, uh, Paul reminds us, actually deserves God's mercy. No one deserves to be called God's people. But in order that God's purpose in election might stand, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That was the passage we looked at last week. And now at the very end of chapter 9 and through chapter 10, Paul will then focus now upon human responsibility. That is, in some real way, the Israelites are themselves responsible for the fact that they are cut off from this Jesus, this Messiah that's been promised. And then the third part, well, you're going to have to come back. I'm not going to, I'm going to keep that powder dry just to tease you to come back in later weeks. But it's worth coming back for. Well, as we look at these verses, friends, we see that the heart of Israel's problem is that they've misunderstood 
righteousness. Israel have misunderstood righteousness. Now, what does God's word mean when, when it speaks, particularly in these verses, about righteousness? The word, by the way, and its variations are mentioned 10 times in these verses. You can't miss it. And one of the problems we have is the original language of the New Testament, the word righteousness comes from the same group of words as the word justified. Now, in English, we need two words to kind of capture this, but in the original language, it's just one word. And to make matters worse, if I was to say to you, you are very righteous. Alex Zunica, our senior associate, he's a very righteous man. He'd say, yes, he says. Very humble man too, one might add. <laughs> we take it as meaning kind of self-righteous, don't we? Someone who's got tickets on themselves. But that's actually not what the word means when we're looking at here in Romans. So we, we've got to work out, it's not, just, it's not really self-righteous, it's actually a relational term. And it's very crucial to understand this relational term. To be righteous means to be in a right relationship. It's a declaration that you are in a right relationship. The obligations of a relationship, it could be a legal relationship, they've been fulfilled, therefore it is a righteous relationship. And the word justified, or if you were to be technically correct, righteousify, it doesn't really fly off the tongue, but it means to make a relationship righteous, to make the relationship okay, to fulfill the obligations of a relationship. And particularly through Romans, it's their relationship with the sovereign Lord. And so when Paul speaks of righteousness, throughout Romans in fact, it's not so much as to make Alex Unica a righteous person, but to rather restore into a righteous relationship. The biblical concept of condemnation is kind of like the opposite end. So you have righteousness or condemnation. Someone who is justified or someone who is condemned. And that helps us understand what Paul is saying in these chapters, indeed throughout the book of Romans. And the first thing we notice is that Israel has actually pursued righteousness, a right relationship with God, which is great, but they've done it in the wrong way, which is not so great. And Paul particularly focuses on the, first, uh, the opening verses on these issues. And what Paul does is he makes a bit of a comparison between Israel and the Gentiles, who traditionally weren't really keen on righteousness. You can see what Paul says here. What shall we then say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. They didn't get it. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. See, they've pursued righteousness, but not in the right way. And it's actually, a little, it's actually a little bit subtler than that. You'll notice that it says, Paul doesn't say they pursued righteousness by the law. Literally, no, it says, they pursued the law of righteousness, but did not arrive at that law, because it was by faith. Uh, sorry, because it was not by faith, but as if it were by works. 
So what's going on here? Well, here's Israel's problem. It's clear from the Old Testament that the law promises righteousness when its demands are met, when its obligations are met. But there are two big problems. And the first one is that Israel actually can't fulfill the law. Paul's already made this point way back in chapter 3, where he actually says, no one is righteous. There's that word again. Not even one. Because of sin, human sin, Israel can actually not obtain this goal of righteousness. They can't keep the law's demands. They can pursue the law all they want, but their human sin will prevent them from getting there. And secondly, and really importantly, Israel has stumbled over Jesus Christ as the Messiah, who has fulfilled the law, completed the law. They've missed that Jesus is the culmination of the law. And he uses this metaphor from Isaiah about a stone in the next verses. He says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, and there are two quotes from Isaiah that Paul shoves together. He's going for the vibe. He says, see, I lay a stone, uh, in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, this stone image, the first part of it comes from Isaiah 28. And in Isaiah 28, the stone is a beautiful, crafted, precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, the most important stone in the building. But the other quote is from Isaiah 8, where God prophesies that he will become a stone over which Israel will stumble. So this stone has two things. First, it's the foundational stone, but yet it's also a stone which, over which Israel will stumble. Do you see what Paul's doing when he uses these really powerful images from Isaiah? He's saying, look, Jesus the Messiah, the one you've missed out on, is actually the foundation, the key thing to being the people of God, to being righteous. He's the precious and pure keystone of salvation. Because it's only in Christ that the demands of the law are fully met. And it's only accepting the Lord Jesus in faith that a person can find the righteousness that the law promised. The law promises righteousness, but it's only through Christ that you can get it. But because Israel actually haven't recognised who Jesus really is, they stumble over him instead, just as the Old Testament prophesied. See, Paul's point is very, very clear. The Lord Jesus is either your cornerstone or your stumbling stone. He is the most precious thing on which you build your house or you will trip over him and, and you'll miss out altogether. Now, one of the things I love about our building here are the beautiful colours, bright, vibrant colours on the wall, right? You think some places have one feature wall? Forget one feature wall. Every wall is a feature wall at St. Jude's. Right? Look at the beautiful colours. Now, the problem is we tend to treat Jesus as the feature wall. Lovely to look at. We can kind of engage back when we want to. But, but it's not foundational. It can be pretty and we can engage on our own. No, no. It's either the found, Jesus is the foundational stone or he's the stumbling stone. There's no in-between. 
And indeed, that's a challenge to us as well. Is Jesus the foundation stone for your life? Because if he's not, he cannot just be a feature wall, he will be a stumbling stone for you. Israel have pursued righteousness, but missed Christ and stumbled. That's Paul's first point. Secondly, when we get to chapter 10, Paul builds on this by saying, look, Israel, they were zealous for righteous, righteousness, but they've forgotten about God's word. They can look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. That is a commendable thing to be. They are on fire for God. They're, they're passionate for God. They come to church on time. That's how passionate for God they are. They sit to, on the front row of church. That is how passionate for God. They turn up to church more than once on a Sunday. I know, it's revolutionary. I know. That's how, that's how zealous they are for God. But, but there's a crucial flaw. Uh, flaw. It's not their zealousness. That, that's commendable. It's their knowledge. Their zeal is not based on knowledge. Paul is saying, look, you, your sincerity and your earnestness to please God cannot save you, will not give you that righteousness that you desire. And this is crucial because our culture, we value sincerity and passion and authenticity. The joke goes that if you can fake authenticity, you've got it made. It's a value. It's worthwhile. And the temptation is to think that when it comes to God, as long as you're sincere, as long as you're passionate, as long as your intentions are good, if you're really seeking God, then, then God will accept that. Your, your sincerity and your passion is enough to win God over to your cause. If you're authentic and on fire for God, then he'll accept you. That is a work, a sincere work, yes, a commendable work at one level, certainly, but it is still a work. And Paul is quite blunt. He says, look, even if you're the most passionate person, if it's not guided by God's word, your zeal, your zeal is missing the mark. It's actually worthless unless it's based on knowledge. It is like having a car with an extremely powerful engine that does naught to 100 in three seconds. Fantastic, but it's got no steering wheel. Problem. No, no, forget, look how fast my car is. Is that a car that you want to drive around Melbourne? We've got lots of straight streets, I know, but we do have corners, and how would you do a hook turn without the steering wheel? See, Paul's key point here is that, that our passion and our vision and our desire to please God must be directed by our knowledge of God through his word. It is passion directed by his word. See, that's Paul fun Paul's fundamental charge against his own people. Their spiritual zeal, which is wonderful and commendable, is not in accordance with the knowledge of God. It lacks the right direction. And the result is in verse 3. Since they did not know 
know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It's really great to be passionate for God, but do you know what that means to be passionate for God? See, the religious zeal, not based on God's word, Paul says here, leads to self-righteousness. You decide the terms on which your righteousness is based. You determine the way in which you can please God. And consequently, if your religious zeal is not based on God's word, you actually miss out on the righteousness that God provides, says Paul. You know, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They missed out. See, friends, it's great that we want to love and serve God. But unless our love and service, unless our love and service is actually shaped by God's own word, Paul says the danger is it actually leads you away from God rather than to God. If you want to know how to love your neighbour as yourself, you look at God's word. If you want to know how to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your soul, you look at God's word. If you want to know what it means to be a godly woman or man in your workplace, you look at God's word. If you want to know how you serve your brothers and sisters at church, you look at God's word. And that's what Israel have forgotten to do. They're passionate, but their passion is not being directed by God's word. And in verses 5 to 8, Paul says that there's actually no excuse. They can't say, look, we're keen, but we really didn't quite work out what God wanted us to do. Paul says, look, the scripture is as clear as the nose on your face. Look at the scriptures. And then he goes on to quote the Old Testament 12 times in 17 verses to make his point. To say, look... It's been there the whole time and you've just missed out. You haven't been reading it. Scripture is clear. Righteousness comes from faith, not works. In verse 5, Moses writes about this righteousness that is by law. The person who does these things will live by them. He's quoting from Leviticus 18.5 here. And he's describing how the Israelites sought to establish their own righteousness. The righteousness that is by law, trying to be right in God's eyes by doing. That's what the living there is. We'll live by them. We'll do these things by following the law. That's the way to righteousness. But Paul's saying, look, you've actually missed the purpose of the law. The Old Testament never taught that you could be righteous, right in God's eyes by following the law. That's what Romans 4 was all about. And in fact, God's law is given after God declares that his people are his. Not before. He says, you are my people. Now here is how you are to live. Not if you follow these laws, you will become my people. The law, the law is a response to grace. Now I've got a, a fantastic dog at home, a Labradoodle. And if you have a, an oodly type dog, you know what uh, a joy they are. And uh, he's in, relatively indifferent with a game of catch. So we'll, we'll play with a ball for a while and he won't drop it so we have to have multiple balls on the go. Uh, and after a while though, he'll kind of miss where one's gone and he'll kind of look at you still. And what you do then, of course, as the owner is, you point to the ball, don't you? So, Wellington, it's over there. It's over there. Now what's the problem with the dog when you point at the ball? Where does the dog look? At your hand, right? 
You're pointing in the bush behind you, but the dog's looking at your hand. And you're thinking, no, no, over there. And the dog's still looking at your hand. And that's a bit like what Israel are doing. The law is pointing to Christ, and they're still looking at the law. They haven't looked at, hang on a second, the law is pointing to Christ. And so they've sought their own righteousness rather than saying, look, Christ has fulfilled the law. That's what it says in verse 4. The culmination of the law. And the idea of culmination is, is a bit like the idea of the end of a race. It's the goal of the race. Well, that's what it's for. But it also symbolizes the end of the race. You don't cross the finish line and then keep running just to be sure. Just in case that the 100 metres was really a 200 metres. No, no, the 100 metre race. That's the goal and that's the end point. That is what Christ is. And then in verses 6 to 8, Paul then contrasts that with righteousness by faith. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So it seems to be a strange thing for Paul to say here. What he's doing, once again, is quoting the Old Testament. And in particular, once again, this is Deuteronomy 30, the book of the law. And in Deuteronomy 30, Moses' purpose in, in saying these things was to prevent the Israelites from evading their responsibilities to doing God's will by pleading ignorance. So let me read to you what, what actually says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. He says, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. In other words, the law I'm about to give you, these words, it's not, you can get it. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who may ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it so that we may obey it? Nor is it in the sea. So we have to ask, who will cross the sea and get it? And proclaim it to us that we may obey it. Now the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. It's uber word, right? It's been brought to you. There's no excuse, says Paul. God has clearly revealed his word so they may follow. And what Paul does is he refers back to those events and says, look, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Just as Israel couldn't plead ignorance that she didn't know God's will. Now, says Paul, neither Jew nor Gentile can plead ignorance of God's revelation of his word in the Lord Jesus. Therefore, there is no need to ascend to heaven, by the way, which is an impossible task for a human to do. To bring Christ down, to ask him how we get righteousness. No, he's already come down. He's already become incarnate. And there's no need to go to the sea or the abyss. That was the place of the dead. To raise Christ up. To guarantee our righteousness because Christ has already been resurrected from the dead. Christ has already come down from heaven, died and been raised again. Therefore, everybody might know and obey him, says Paul. Or put it positively in the next verse, he says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, that is the message concerning the faith we proclaim. See, Paul's point is clear. He's saying that this message about the righteousness that is by faith, the gospel is already accessible. It's already understandable. You don't need to have a PhD in biblical studies 
to understand the gospel. Now, Karl Barth was arguably one of the smartest theologians who ever lived. Uh, extremely intelligent German theologian who wrote volumes of work. And if you have a, a small little brain like mine, it is dense theology that, that takes effort and energy. And that's just in the English, let alone in the original German. And he was asked what was the most profound thing he had learnt in his many, many years of studies. And this is what he said. I won't do it in German, mainly because I don't speak German fluently, but this is what he said. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is how he condensed decades of deep theological thought. It is accessible, it is an understandable truth, and a truth that be, can be proclaimed. It is a word of faith. A word of faith. Therefore, Israel are without excuse. It was not in the too hard basket. It was clear. It was available. It was a word that was proclaimed, and it's the same for us. We have no excuse, for the Lord Jesus has come. It is a word that we continue to proclaim, which is, amongst other things, why we're doing this mission uh, later in the year. We want this word to continue to be proclaimed. That Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, the final point that Paul makes is that true righteousness comes from putting faith in the Lord Jesus. So Paul spells out what Israel's response should have been and indeed what our response should be. Not by works, not by doing things, not by counting our zealousness as the reason, but by trusting or believing in the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the challenges again is that word trust, believe and faith are all the same word in the original language. And so we kind of miss out the repetition. So in verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, says Paul. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. Do you notice Paul's focus here on the resurrection? If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Why this focus on the resurrection? Has he forgotten the cross? No. The resurrection is God's vindication, the proof that everything that Jesus has accomplished in his life and death has been successful. He has triumphed over our guilt and our sin and our condemnation, over death, over Satan and hell, and now the risen Christ lords and reigns over the universe. He is the sovereign God. And he's given the name that is above every name, Lord. And so what's our response to this declaration? And there's only one response possible. And it's the response of faith or trust or believing. It's the call to accept Jesus as Saviour and Lord. 
He is our Savior because he has won for us new life. He has fulfilled the law. He has declared us righteous. But he is Lord in the sense that he shapes and directs and guides and tells us how to live our lives. You can't have Jesus just as Savior and not as Lord. He is both Savior and Lord. When we are declared righteous, that is what the response for us is. It is faith in declaring Christ as Savior and Lord. You can't have one without the other. And consequently, this means that God's grace, his righteousness is available to anybody. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're male or female, whether you're slave or free, whether you're old or young. Listen how emphatic Paul is right at the very end here in verse 12. For there is, and this is a very radical thing to say in the first century, no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now we kind of miss how radical that statement is because we're kind of used to a multicultural society. There is no difference between, it's very hard to find something that really grates with us the same way as it would for many people. Why is that the case? For the same Lord is Lord of all and riches, uh, richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name who, of the Lord will be saved. That's the great news, friends. All are saved by grace, respond with faith. That is available to all who trust Jesus. And what that means is that our own righteousness is based entirely on the work of Christ. That's what you look to to determine whether you are right with God or not. It's not the zeal in your heart, but I do hope you are zealous and passionate for the Lord. It is only based on the glorious truth that God has given us new hearts and that God hand, uh, holds out his hands in mercy in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose own hands were held out on the cross and whose own heart was stopped cold as stone to give us a new heart. That's the only way we have a new heart. Now why is this crucial? Because in verse 10 it's with your heart that you believe. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. See friends, I think we often know this intellectually but we don't live it out experientially. Let me explain what I mean. I think there's only a fraction of professing Christians who truly, deeply live out uh, their lives as righteous people. And what I mean by that is not self-righteous, but those who have lived out, uh, those who truly believe in their heart that they are justified. There's a great author, Richard Lovelace, who says this. He says, Many people, firstly, have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and the guilt and extent of their sin that consciously they see little need for God's righteousness and being made right. Although often below the surfaces of their lives, they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. I wonder if that's you. Uh, secondly, uh, 
Many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, that is, that we are justified by faith alone. But in their day-to-day existence, they rely on themselves on their justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance from God from their sincerity, or Paul would say, zeal, or their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, the relative infrequency of their conscious and willful disobedience. This is when you say, look, my righteousness with God is based upon how often I've been to church recently, or how good my quiet times have been, or how often I've attended my small group, as a way of measuring how right you are with God. I wonder if that's you. Lovelace says, few of us know how to start each day with a thoroughgoing understanding that our lives are righteous. That you are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the righteousness of Christ as the only grounds for acceptance and relaxing in the quality of trust which provides increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and guidance. Friends, my prayer is that that is you and that will become you. That you will find a deep confidence and peace in the righteousness that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you are someone who stands perfectly in the grace of God, not in your own strength or passion or abilities, but in spite of them. Someone who can say, yes, I am righteous, not self-righteous, but because of what my Lord and Saviour has done for me. Friends, let me pray that we will embrace this righteousness that comes from faith and be transformed by it. Our gracious and most merciful Father, we thank you for these deeply challenging words from Paul. that remind us that our standing with you as your children depends not on what we do or feel, on our passion or might, but only in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We give you thanks and praise, Father, that while we were still far off, while we were undeserving of righteousness, Christ came, died and was raised again to win us life. May we live as people who stand in this righteous grace, giving you praise for all you have done. Amen. This beautiful hymn we're about to sing.